Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, Caroline Pinham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent. From New York, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our U.S. banking editor, and our guest this week is Laurie Myers, Associate Managing Director at Moody's. This week, we'll take a look at the U.K. stress tests as the U.K.'s big seven banks all pass, J.P. Morgan and the treatment of black customers. And finally, our predictions for 2020. What do all our experts think is going to happen next year to the banking sector? First, though, to those UK stress tests. And um, David and Caroline, you spent hours locked up in the Bank of England yesterday to hear the full details of both the stress test and also the associated financial stability report from the bank. What were the top line takeaways? I mentioned, David, that all the big banks had passed. Is there something more interesting to say? Well, they've all passed, but, you know, with different pass marks, I suppose. So the sort of runaway winner was nationwide. The Building Society is very well capitalised and was well above its hurdle rate or pass mark. That's not true for Barclays, which came in at the bottom of the pack, just 80 basis points or something above their pass mark. So you're seeing the differences in the business models here. Barclays has a very big credit card business, both in the UK and internationally, and that hurt it. And what were the key stresses that were imposed in these stress tests? Because obviously the Bank of England changes these scenarios every year. So effectively, this was a disorderly Brexit or worse than a disorderly Brexit combined with a global trade war worse, we're told, than the trade tensions between the US and China and continuing turmoil in Hong Kong. And of course, that's very important for the UK banks because HSBC and Standard Chartered derive a large portion of their revenues from the Hong Kong market. Caroline, what's your key observation? Well, a couple of things. Although all seven lenders passed, the BOE was at pains to say that actually, unless they suspended dividend payments, coupons on 81 debt, things like that, actually, they would not, in aggregate, have passed. 81 debt, this is the additional tier one. type of debt. Yes. That counts towards your equity in good times, but essentially stops taxpayers being bailed in and holds creditors' feet to the fire instead. So what they were at pains to say was really that investors should be aware that these aren't really the gifts that keep on giving. I mean, it's a statement of the obvious, really, but it is important to note. The other thing was actually not in the stress test per se, but in the financial stability report, there was a note that the BOE is going to review banks' capital requirements from next year. Essentially, what they're doing is they're putting the counter-cyclical buffer up. That's the bank's rainy day fund where they have to provision in good times to draw down upon in bad so that they can keep lending through a slump. 
that's doubling from 1% to 2%. Essentially, 2% is roughly equivalent to £23 billion. But also what they're doing is they're looking at this bail-inable debt, MREL, as it's called under the European Directive. And so overall, they're saying that capital requirements will stay broadly the same. It's just that the buckets in which the capital is put is changing. Now, the reason why that's quite noteworthy is that we've heard a very similar kind of messaging out of the Fed in recent weeks, that they're going to tweak capital requirements, but broadly the level of capital is staying the same. And that's actually prompted quite a lot of concern on a global basis because we're at a very delicate time with the implementation of Basel 3.1 or Basel 4 or however you want to categorise it. And you've got a bit of a standoff between the Europeans on one side of the Atlantic and the US, both sort of waiting for the other to fully implement Basel 4. I actually asked Mark Carney, the governor of the BOE, about this yesterday at the press conference, and he very firmly rejected that this was any kind of watering down of Basel III and that this was very much the PRA, which is the BOE's division that supervises the largest lenders and insurers, just making sure that the system is working as best it can. Just to come back to you, David, on this one point about this tweaking of the way in which they calculate the overall capital number or the other overall capital requirement even if they're just kind of moving buckets around. The idea that the counter-cyclical buffer, the kind of good times buffer, goes up and some of the other stuff comes down might make it harder for the banks because this has to be equity and some of the other stuff doesn't have to be equity. Does that pose problems for the banks? Well, it's bad for buybacks and it's potentially bad for dividends too. And I think this is the really important thing, picking up on what Caroline said. These pass marks came with a very big health warning because the sort of received wisdom that has emerged since the crisis is, yeah, the banks don't make any money anymore, but they're incredibly safe. And you often hear this phrase, a bank is like a bond. Lloyd's is a really big bond, and it will just return all of this cash to investors. And the Bank of England is saying, hang on a minute, that's not the case. If we have a downturn, those buybacks will go, and then potentially those dividends will go too and income investors will notice it in their accounts. So I think that's a very big health warning from the bank there. That's an important move, and actually quite at odds perhaps with the EU27, where we've seen the reverse emphasis being put on the makeup of capital and actually stressing that they can use more debt rather than equity, as Unicredit showed a week or two ago. Let's move on to our second topic for the day, and a look at JP Morgan Chase, which has got involved in a bit of a race route We're joined by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, to talk about this. What has exactly happened, Laura? So the story really took off on Wednesday when the New York Times published revelations of various incidents of racism at a Chase branch in Arizona. I say revelations rather than allegations because as well as just having accounts of what happened, the New York Times also published some very damning audio. There was a recording given to the Times where you could actually hear some of the comments that these Chase employees in Arizona were making about black customers. So in one of the audio files, we heard a Chase manager who was telling a colleague that he should not take on as a client a black woman who had just gotten a $400,000 wrongful death settlement. And the Chase manager's argument for not taking on this woman as a client was that she never had a nickel to spend and she would burn through the money quickly since this is not money she respects. She didn't earn it. There was another instance where there's a tape on file showing a former NFL football player who recorded a conversation where a banker told him that his colleagues don't see black people like you a lot. That and other comments led to this former NFL player, a guy called Jimmy Kennedy, believing he was being denied a Chase private client account on the basis that he was black. 
So there were other issues as well referred to in the story and they overall painted a picture of this Chase branch in Arizona being a place that was unfair both to black clients and also to some black employees who worked there. So the bank has responded quite quickly, I think. What exactly have they done? So Chase did their best to get out in front of this story. On the evening that the story actually appeared in the New York Times, the co-president of Chase and head of the consumer bank, Gordon Smith, did a call with Chase employees where he was very damning of what happened. I mean, he said he was sickened by the racism he had heard in the branch and he talked about how far away what happened there was from the kind of company Chase tries to be. So he said stuff like this strikes at the very heart of who we are and what we believe in and what this company is all about. That same call also featured Tassanda Brown-Duckett. She's one of America's most senior black bankers. She's also the head of Chase's consumer banking division. And she also was very apologetic of what happened and said, you know, this isn't at all who Chase wants to be and she wants to use it as an opportunity to do better. Then on Friday, J.P. Morgan's CEO, Jamie Diamond, he added his voice to the concern about what had happened. He issued an email to all of the bank's U.S. employees saying that racist behaviour is unacceptable. He says, I'm disgusted by racism and hate in any form. He talks about it being unacceptable and not reflecting who we are as a company and how we serve our clients. Now, he didn't specifically reference the events in Arizona, but everyone knew that's exactly what he was talking about. So Jamie Dimon these days spends as much time talking about being a good human being and a good economic citizen as he does talking about the bank. I mean, he does a lot of work in impoverished communities. He talks a lot about what the US needs to do economically. So he wanted to be very clear that he sees no place for racism in his company or in his country. And that's what he was setting out to try to do. It's hard to believe that this incident is isolated either to JP Morgan or to this one branch. Do you think there's going to be a kind of broader backlash against the banks and the way they treat black customers? This, of course, is far from the first time that there have been allegations of racism in the US financial system. And there are various studies showing how it remains harder for black people and for other minorities to access everything from mortgage loans to credit cards and I think there are genuine issues there and those issues persist even as we move from a system where credit applications are judged by humans to credit applications being judged by AI and by machines because the problem with these as we've seen as well in some of the recent issues around the Apple Card and the accidental sexism in the Apple Card applications these machines only work on the data which has been fed into them. So if the system has historically been one that gives higher levels of credit to white people or to men and that gives less money to black people, Latinos and women those kind of biases will accidentally persist and it's quite hard to really stamp that out. So I think it really is an issue that people have been grappling with for decades. And I think even aside from the fact that this appears to be, and certainly Chase has been saying this is very much an isolated incident and involved a couple of rogue employees, there are some underlying issues around how do you ensure adequate supply of credit to minorities of all sorts in the US system and I think also in the system globally. Well, thanks for that, Laura. We're going to come back to you shortly because our third and final segment of the day is a pre-Christmas special, our predictions for 2020. We're joined by Laurie Mayers from Moody's, so she's going to kick us off with her predictions for next year and what the banks have to look forward to. Laurie, welcome. What's your top pick? So first of all, starting at the global level, our view is that globally banks will find themselves under increasing pressure, primarily in terms of profitability. We recently put out our outlook for global banks, and that's negative. And what's driving this is really a lot of factors I think we've been talking about for a while, rising global trade tensions, 
low for longer or lowering interest rates, depending on jurisdiction, and also the need for banks to continue investing in terms of digital trends, et cetera. If we take that down to the European level, a lot of the same trends are relevant. Obviously, growth in Europe has been weaker and is expected to continue to be weak. And many banking systems find that profitability is very much under pressure. Obviously, negative rates is a factor, but also very high cost structures, which banks are struggling to bring down. And again, there's this need to invest in terms of digital. And then moving to the UK, the UK obviously is affected by expectations of weaker growth and an overhang in terms of Brexit uncertainty. So that's not just gone away because of the election result. And while rates are higher, net interest margins are very much under pressure in the UK because of very heightened level of competition on the back of the implementation of ring fencing. And again, the need to invest in what's a very fast move towards digital banking activity. That's a fairly bearish picture. Is there any positive expectations you have for next year? Sure. On the positive front, banks are definitely safer and more liquid than they were pre-crisis. So despite the pressures on profitability, asset quality is pretty strong. Capital levels are much higher than they were, and liquidity is quite ample. And banks are building up loss-absorbing capital, which is there to absorb losses in the event of failure. And one last factor, which I'd mention, is the whole focus, particularly in Europe, on sustainable finance. And that's very much a positive trend where the banks, European banks, are very much committed to doing what they can to help sectors transition and also to issue green bonds, which has been quite a high level of activity by European banks so far. And we expect more of that to come next year and the years following. Okay. Caroline, let me come to you for your top picks for next year. Well, in terms of trends, I think there's a couple of things that we can expect, certainly from the UK regulators. It's been pretty quiet since the Brexit referendum, as you would expect, because bandwidth, both for the financial services industry and the regulators themselves, has been very squarely in preparing for Brexit. Most of the work there has been done, although, as Laurie says, this idea that Brexit will be done by January is a bit of a fallacy. And so I think a lot of 2020 will still be taken up by that. However, I would expect there to be a bit more activity from both the Financial Conduct Authority and the Bank of England than we've seen in the last couple of years. I think money laundering and sanctions controls and that kind of thing is still going to be a big focus for both the PRA and the FCA, particularly looking at banks that perhaps aren't UK or European based. Yeah, and the European regulators are very focused on this as well. The European regulators, because of Danske Bank, because of the Nordic banks, Cyprus, Baltics, you name it, have understandably belatedly had to have a focus on money laundering. And so that's already in train. But I think for big international banks that are active in London, that come from other parts of the world, uh, focus might actually start to train on them. The other thing is that the senior managers regime has been pretty quiet hitherto. We've only seen one enforcement action, and that's really debatable whether it was under the SMR or not against Jess Staley, who's the CEO of Barclays. That regime has now been rolled out to the entire financial industry. For banks and insurers, it's been in place since 2016. 
It's been relatively quiet so far, as I say, but I think I would expect a bit more action in that as well. I think overall, the FCA fines this year we saw had come off their very low points of the last couple of years, and they're back up to a sort of vaguely healthy level, if we can put it like that, depending what your perspective is of healthy. And I think I would expect that trend to continue into 2020. Okay. Nick, your turn. Well, as Laurie mentioned, I think with regards to the British retail banks, a lot of what happens is going to be kind of a continuation of some of the same trends that we've been seeing this year and things that are somewhat out of their control, like regulation, competition, the Brexit overhang. I mean, that's sort of why over the last week we saw a market-wide rally after Boris Johnson's election victory and then a partial reversal as soon as it started to look like a no-deal Brexit was back on the table. However, one individual company I think it would be particularly worth keeping an eye on over the next 12 months or so is Royal Bank of Scotland. We already knew that the new chief executive, Alison Rose, has got to outline a new strategy plan at their four-year results in February. But in the wake of the election, there's arguably even more riding on that because with a conservative majority, I think we should expect the government will want to start getting back towards fully reprivatizing the bank as soon as possible, especially if that strategy goes down well. The shares are about 7% off the price at which they last sold. So if they could get back up there, and even if they're just slightly below it, I think you'd start to see sales speeding up. Yes, that's definitely one to watch. Let's go back to Laura in New York for her outlook. And I think you're a bit more positive about the US and the global banks than Laurie was. So I'm going to be optimistic in my predictions, and I'm going to say that 2020 is going to be a good year for US banks. There are some headwinds heading into the year, interest rates in particular, but the most recent commentary from the banks around interest rates and net interest income has been positive. And I think that the big banks in particular are going to continue to outperform there in the coming months. Banks have been more cautious around the trading front and they see a combination of headwinds and also tailwinds for next year. So we will have heightened volatility, which could make things difficult in some areas and which could encourage investors to sit on the sidelines. I think overall it's going to play to the big bank's strengths. I also expect the biggest banks to continue to benefit from the consolidation of share away from both the European banks here, also from the kind of second and third tier banks. I could be totally wrong on this and we could do this podcast again at the end of this year and banks are all down 10%. But I think overall I would expect the biggest five to six US banks to have a good 2020. Thanks, Laura. David, you're the last to pick. Is anything left for you to predict? I think I predict a year of CEO succession. We're going to find out who the new CEO of HSBC is in the new year, probably. Lloyds will start the search for a new chairman in the new year, and that will probably fire the starting gun on trying to find a replacement for Antonio Horta Osorio. Chief executive, yeah. the chief executive of Lloyds, and he's been in place since 2011. Sergio Motti has been at UBS since 2011 too, and the received wisdom there is that he will go or be replaced before Axel Weber, the chairman there. And I think there's also a question mark for different reasons over Jess Staley, CEO at Barclays, and Bill Winters, CEO at Standard Chartered, just because there is a feeling out there that they're not having too much fun and might be thinking about pastures new. Now, a quick sort of caveat or comment on this. I also predict it's going to be the year for the internal candidate. Now, after the financial crisis, obviously, the UK banks especially couldn't recruit from the traditional pool because all of those people's reputations were in tatters. And so you ended up with this strange situation where we had a New Zealander, two Americans and a Portuguese running four of the five largest British banks. But I think that especially in terms of trying to recruit from America, 
where the salary differential is large and growing, that's getting very, very difficult. And so you see Noel Quinn, interim CEO, internal candidate, HSBC, a lot of people think he's got a good chance. RBS went for Alison Rose as their CEO, the internal candidate. So it could be good news if you are number two or number three at a UK bank. We'll keep an eye. Thank you, David. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much to all my guests, including Laurie Mayers, the Associate Managing Director at Moody's in charge of banks, and obviously to all the FT team. We all wish you a very fun, festive season. We'll be back after a two-week break on the 7th of January. In the meantime, remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next year, goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.